morning, and welcome to Chinese Gospel Church. My name is Pastor Kevin Hauser, and I want to welcome you warmly in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to our services this morning. If you're visiting for the first time, I pray that when these restrictions come off, we will get to be able to know you have a copy and ask and see how the Lord is working in your life. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. My praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Let us pray. Our wonderful, gracious, heavenly Father, we come before you again this morning, dispersed from different parts of the GTA, and yet with one heart, one desire, to worship you, even through the secondary means as, as through the internet, to be able to worship glorify you family. Thank you that you to guide and direct our, our politicians, our, our church uh, directors, all of who would have uh, any input to the restrictions, the directions under which we're living now according to COVID, and ask that you would continue to give them guidance and direction. We thank you, Lord, as we come this morning. Your Holy Spirit has not only guided us here, but we look back at all that he has done in bringing us to Christ, moving and, and, and bringing people into our lives to specifically proclaim the glory of Christ. And as we have that, you have softened our hearts, received our faith, have brought us into your family and into this church that we might walk one with another in the days that you have allotted with us in a life of righteousness before a world that is dead in sin. Help us, I pray, to be good testimonies of that glory. But as we come this morning, we also we have not been the mortal Christian, the mortal believer this week. There have times when we have sinned grievously against you. There are times when we neglect our holy responsibilities, and we ask for your forgiveness for those. Before we proceed any farther with our worship time, help us, I pray, to have that sense of a cleansing of our conscience once again as, as we ask for your forgiveness. Lord, in this very moment of quiet, guide us and help us to unburden from our souls those things which would impede from a holy worship of your name this morning. So thank you, and continue to lead us. Heavenly Father, I pray as well for our church. I, I pray for each and every family member who is represented in our congregation that you would continue to lead them in the path of righteousness. You would continue to help them uh, look at their lives and to desire after you to put away sin, to encourage and admonish one another in this holy calling. But I also think of us in terms of a church you have guided us and led us for over 50 years. 
we have started from very humble beginnings. And we come to this new juncture in the life of our church. Not simply under the restrictions of COVID, but once they're lifted, how we are going to proceed with our worship services. We heard last week how uh, you seem to be working amongst the leadership of all of the congregations to bring us to a consensus that this may be the time to unify our church through different ministries, looking after the children and the Mandarin, and, and that may necessitate hourly changes of worship for each and every congregation. There may be some of us, Lord God, who are very gung-ho and ready to go, and I ask that you would just help them to be conscious of others and to slow. There may be some of us, Lord God, who just don't quite grasp the importance and the vision and we would ask that you would just work with them, that we might see and understand what your plan is for us to, to move ahead. But as a body, as Cantonese, as Mandarin, as English, we are one family. We are one church on this corner in downtown Toronto. And we pray that you will help us, Lord God, to shout the gospel to all those who are around. Help us, I pray, to be missional, in our daily living, in our families, at our workplaces, even in the church itself. May we not be a church simply with many ministries and many trellises doing wonderful things and yet not really having an impact into the world around us. Help us, I pray, to know and to do the will of the Lord. I want to pray as well, Lord God, at this time for Daniel Edwards, one of the missionaries we support, and it's been a, a tough year. He's had a couple family members die, and, and he's still reeling from not being able to reconnect with his family to, to show, uh, introduce his wife and his kids. And as he is continuing to serve, those who are Muslim in background who are curious are coming like never before because of COVID. They're asking questions about Christ. So we pray that even through this time of pandemic, you would use men and families like them to be the spear point of your kingdom, that the gospel would be proclaimed, Jesus Christ would be exalted, and that peoples from every nation and tongue would render their soul unto him, and by faith be saved. So, Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks that you continue to grow your kingdom, increase your church, even through the meager efforts of who we are or your people such as Daniel. May it be to your glory. I pray as well for the chance to give for the faithfulness of our congregation who week after week, despite not being able to fellowship together in person, that you would just bless them for their gift of giving, for the desire of their heart to see you continue to be glorified in the ministries of this church as we seek to reach out and to connect with one another and to encourage one another in our holy task despite not being able to come together. So, Heavenly Father, in all of these things and many more, we just thank you for your guidance and direction. And as we come to your word now, we understand that 
it is true. It is effectual to bring about salvation, to bring about sanctification in our life. It may not always be easy to understand, and yet its basic spiritual truths are just that. They're simple. They are truth. Help us, I pray, to come to it this morning with that clean conscience that we have repented of our sins, with a mind and a heart that's opened and eager to learn. And Holy Spirit, we wait eagerly for your use of this word to bring us into greater righteousness. We thank you and ask that you would just continue to lead through this worship time. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to be preaching from verses 10 through 13. And I'm specifically going to be preaching from the English Standard Version. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand firm. This morning we come to one of those sections of scripture that are so vivid in our memory, whether it's been through CE class or small groups or even children's time. We have this mental image of the armor of God presented to us as a Roman soldier. It's really part of this greater section of spiritual warfare that predominates now in chapter 6. But it all started really in chapter 1, verse 1. And it's connected particularly to chapter 4, verse 1, which is the key verse of all of Ephesians, where Paul says, you need to walk worthy in a manner that is worthy of the calling of God in your life. We were once children of wrath, but now we are saved by grace. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are seated in the heavenly places, which, by the way, is the context of why we're going to be talking about spiritual warfare. Because of being seated with Christ in the heavenlies, we are now in that warfare. In the first part of the book, the letter, Paul is emphasizing who we now are in Christ. We are in him and all of the blessings that brings. He then moves to what this great truth should be in our life, how it should work out in our relationships. And in all of our contexts, our, co our relationships, it, they should be consonant with this one truth that we are in Christ. Whether it's in the church, whether it's in our families, whether it's in the world itself, this one great truth of being in Christ must work itself out in all of our relationships. But Paul also understands that we are not people who are yet perfected. We're, we're going to struggle greatly in this call. We are called to walk worthy of a manner of God's calling, and yet we, we're saved. We're going to sin. 
We're going to have struggles in our marriage. We're going to have struggles in the body of Christ, in the church. We're going to have struggles in the world itself. In fact, this struggle, this choice between sinning and walking in righteousness, doing what we know is truly and whole, is going to be a key defining element of who we are for the rest of our lives, the rest of our days here on earth. It's a great spiritual battle that's played out in the heavenly places, but also in our lives. And that's what Paul now is directing us to for the rest of chapter 6 in the letter of Ephesians. Now, as I was looking at all of these things this morning, the first thing that I want us to really take seriously is that this is a spiritual battle. We don't like to talk about this too much in the evangelical world for some reason. Maybe we think it belongs to the, the world of the charismatic churches to be talking about demons and devils and, and these powers and authorities. Maybe it's because we're still too culturally defined by our scientific mindset that says there is nothing supernatural, it's all explainable. Maybe we've become too complacent and comfortable in our lives. Or maybe it's simply because we've lost sight of our need to strive after holiness. Whatever the reason, many Christians seem to fail to understand and to take seriously the reality that there is a spiritual war that has been raging for thousands of years. A war for the hearts and the worship of all peoples everywhere. This war, Paul says... It's played out in the heavenlies, but it spills over into the physical world around us. And as it spills over, Christians become a special target of interest because we are in Christ. Because we are already seated with Christ in the heavenlies, we are like a lightning rod for the attacks of the enemy. This war is headed up by none other than Satan, the devil. And we read in verses 11 and 12 that he has a wide range of sub-commanders under him. We see rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of darkness. These powers, these potentates, are part of the realm of sin and darkness that are in conflict with God and, and also in conflict with every person who would declare Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They, they live in the heavenly places and yet they have real power, real authority here in the physical world. They're involved in the world around us trying to impact the lives of people so that they will worship the devil. Let me assure you, they are real. It would be foolish of us to deny that they're real or to deny that there is a spiritual attack or that we are immune to their attacks. Let me also assure you that the commander, Satan, and his army, this is a formidable foe. We know that Satan is already defeated, but that makes him more dangerous, doesn't it? You ever seen what happens when you force a, a wild animal into a confined space, when you back them up into a corner? Even when you get your gentle pussycat backed up where he doesn't want to be, that's when he gets, becomes dangerous. 
We understand that Satan is not like God. He is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. But let me say this. He seems to have an endless resource usage. He is not all-powerful and all-knowing, but he knows more than I do. He knows more than you do. He's been around since almost the beginning of time, and he's made a life study of human behavior. And because of that, he knows my greatest weaknesses. He knows your greatest weaknesses and your faults. And that's why he is such a formidable foe. He is a liar, the father of lies, crafty and resourceful beyond our understanding. He can transform himself to appear as an angel of light. And we know that he walks this day like a roaring lion, desiring to consume all that would fall prey. Paul says that this enemy Satan has laid against us many schemes, verse 11, and schemes to achieve his sinister goals. Now, the word Paul uses here for schemes is the word we get our, our English word method from, and it's in the plural, so there's an emphasis here that there is almost an endless array of methods or means to reach into the lives of believers and wage war on them. Now, when we think of war, we think of two great enemies squaring off on the battlefield. And for centuries, war was waged in, con in an idea of direct confrontation with maneuvers and countermaneuvers. The Romans themselves fought battles in tight formation called phalanxes. But if we expect Satan to fight by a clean rule book, we're sadly mistaken. Satan's strategies are seldom direct and seldom confrontational. In fact, he, he's known for being effective and going around. He, he knows the subtleties and the usefulness of a long, protracted war of attrition against a Christian. And that's why we need to be extra careful. If you've never read C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, I, I want to highly encourage it to you. In it, Screwtape is a higher, senior, bureaucratic demon in Satan's command. And he's writing to his nephew, Wormwood, a lesser, inexperienced demon. And Wormwood's task is to deceive a person called the patient. Wormwood's plan is very elaborate. It's to tempt a person into doing deplorable, exceedingly wicked things. But in this series of letters, Screwtape sends to his nephew, he encourages, and he says, there's a better way. There is a far more sure way. And here's one of the more famous quotes. The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without sideposts. Now, I don't know about you, but the very fact that we have a powerful spiritual enemy who desires to dethrone Christ in my life and who at this very moment, even now, is working surely through subterfuge to slowly bring a war of attrition, a guerrilla warfare against my soul, that's alarming. He may not be able to destroy us, but there's much that he can do 
to weaken our faith and to cool our love for God. He may not be able to revoke my salvation, but there's much that he can do to extinguish my worship for God and make me useful for service. Satan's purposes in tempting us are to defile our conscience, to disfigure the the beauty of God's grace in our lives, to encourage others to sin by seeing us sin, and to create, again, a breach between God and my soul. As the father of lies and the great tempter, instead of presenting us with a great and obvious sin that we would recognize and reject right off the bat, he leads us through a series of lesser, seemingly trivial temptations. And by doing that, he weakens our sense of sorrow over guilt and sin. And he weakens our, uh, our impulse to repent. Now, none of us would go to work and think, well, I'm going to have an affair today. And yet, as opportunities arise, we start taking a second or a third glance at our secretary. We find ourselves in intimate settings where we're enticed by her perfume or the tightness of his clothes. Thoughts that would have been quickly vanquished at the very beginning start to linger. We start to slowly enjoy and even seek out opportunities where our budding desires can be indulged. We we start to share aspects of ourselves, revealing personal intimate matters and, and establishing a relationship. And then late one night... The stage is set. The same is true of pornography. If you read any of the accounts written by repentant believers, it starts slowly by nursing lesser passions that grow into greater sins, which these themselves indulge and bring on more perverse things. As one level of desire is met, it creates a new threshold to be satisfied in our soul, and it sets the trap for us that sin doesn't matter. In so many areas of our life, we would never uh, outrightly agree to this open, egregious, blatant sin. Things like cheating on exams, stealing from work, lying on our taxes, and yet by being tempted and succumbing to smaller steps of sin, Satan leads us by our passions to greater and more heinous sins. And then there's always the the reality of if we don't see God seemingly chastising us for our sins, or if we see success in our life, even though we're sinning, we tend to think that this sin isn't important. That's Screwtape's recommendation, is it not? The safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. One of the things that I've seen in the lives of many people over the years as I've served in, in the church and even counseled people is this what seems to be a serendipitous series of events that people fall into and then get themselves into egregious sin. 
When we talk about the providence of God, we understand this concept of confluence, that all things are moving by God's grace to one end point in itself and to his ultimate purposes. It's like a river coming from many different smaller rivers. At that one point, all of these things flow together and move out. But let me just say this. In the confluence or the coming together of these different rivers, there are also backstreams, little marshes, water backfeeds. And I want to encourage you that Satan, again, he's not without power in this world. He's not without influence. So even though the providence of God is moving and using all things to come to his end and his purposes, Satan himself is in the mix. And he has real authority and power to be able to maneuver things. So there is nothing serendipitous. It all flows by the providence of God. And yet, even within that, Satan himself has much to manipulate. Now, I can't say that I'm a big fisherman. Every once in a while, I do enjoy it. I'll go to my parents' cottage. I'll sit on the dock and and throw a line in. And as you're at the dock, you'll see the different kinds of fishermen. There's, there's basically two on that lake. One is the, the guy who will go out in his boat, and he's got his seat, and he's got his rod. He goes to every spot on the lake. He knows the best place to catch the fish. He knows the shallows. He knows the reeds. And he knows when to go. Then there's the other guy. You see him out in the late evening, before dusk, just trolling up and down the lake, hoping to catch something. Now, there's two really important aspects about fishing. You could have all of the wonderful equipment in the world, but here are the two things it comes down to. First is, you know, you you have to know what bait to use. And the second is, you know, you have to know when to let the fish run and set the hook. When Paul uses the word schemes, as Satan has many schemes against the believers. I don't believe that he is out there trolling his boat, just trying to catch whoever he will. He is more like the other fishermen. He knows where to go. He knows what bait to use, and he knows to catch fish. So this reality, we are in a spiritual war, and we have a great enemy who is leading that up sets the urgency for Paul's commands in verses 10 and 11. Be strong. Put on the armor of God. Now what happens most when we look at these verses, we'll go to the second one. Put on the armor of God. And we'll start talking about what that means. But we neglect the first. But being strong in the Lord is just as important and just as necessary as donning the armor. In fact, it is the necessary precursor to putting on the armor of God. We could all be suited up with the armor of God and not be willing to stand on the battle line. I think in World War I, or the Battle of Ypres, the French and the Canadians were on one flank of the city. And the Germans decided for the first time to use mustard gas Well, somehow the Allies found out, so they were able to get masks to everyone on those front lines. But when the Germans did come, when the chlorine gas was dumped in, there was tons of gallons of this stuff. 
the French just fled and left the Canadians. They had the equipment, but they weren't willing to stand. This is not a warfare against flesh and blood, but against evil powers of this age. And we understand that these spiritual powers are arrayed against us. It is a determined enemy that we have. And in in facing a determined enemy, it's easy to feel overpowered. It's easy to feel dismayed or doomed. I think of the Battle of Pelennor Fields in The Lord of the Rings. It's the major turning point in, in the trilogy. In the movie, you see King Theoden coming over the hill with thousands of men and laying there in the valley is this wonderful city of Minas Tirith. Then there's tens of thousands of orcs and imps and, and all of these strange evil creatures that have laid siege to the city. And as the camera pans the, the, uh, the forces... You see Eowyn and Mary, they're white as a ghost, and they're dismayed at what they see. It would be easy for us to say Satan is their arch enemy, and he's got this innumerable uh, horde of, of people, of things to do his, his work with. And yet God calls us to be strong. It's a call to be courageous. It's a call to be resolute. It's a call to stand fixed and to persevere in what God has called us to do. But the power to be strong doesn't come from ourselves. You notice what Paul says? Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. If you remember chapter 1, verse 19... Paul's prayed that by knowing God intimately, we would understand his mighty power displayed through Christ's resurrection and ascension. And then he immediately prays that we would appropriate that power. Now, here in verse 10, the command is be strong. In its original, it's a passive. So there's an emphasis here that we are not doing the action. The action of being strengthened is being acted on us. We're not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps here. But it's also in a present tense. It's, uh, we are continually, regularly, daily being strengthened. Now here we have a conundrum. How can I be commanded to be strong and yet not be the one who's doing the action? Here's how. Because the instrument of our standing is in the Lord and his might. We are to be strong in the Lord and what he has accomplished for us. As we understand and internalize what Christ has done through the cross and through his ascension, we are strengthened. So here's the issue that we need to wrestle with at the heart of this conundrum, is that we may understand that God is all-powerful, He's already won this spiritual warfare, but are we assured, do we believe with all our heart that he is all-powerful unto us? I see this regularly in Christians' lives. They haven't appropriated a spiritual truth of God's word, and so it makes them weak in some area of their life. If we know that Christ has conquered sin and death and Satan, and 
we have appropriated or taken ownership of that as an aspect of our faith, <coughs> then we can be, as Paul says, we can be strong because we're being strong in the Lord and his strength. It's his power that is working in me by faith. The truth of God's power must be appropriated by faith. And that's the necessary step that precedes Paul's call to put on the armor of God. As a soldier, I'm not going to be courageous and prepare myself for a battle that I can't win. He needs to encourage me daily that he is already the victor and that he's on my side. I could have the whole armor of God on and yet not be resolute and strong to stand in the Lord. Next week, we're actually going to look at the armor itself, but a, a few more points to ponder here. This armor, it, it comes from God. And because of that, it is more than sufficient to keep us safe and to ensure victory. This armor is complete in that it, there is nothing else that we would need that he couldn't supply. And in fact, if there's anything we would want to add to this armor will only detract detract from its effectiveness. It's spiritual in nature, so it's useful for warfare against a spiritual enemy. In fact, it is perfected by Christ himself, and so it's superior to anything our enemy may wield. But the really important point to grasp here is that God provides his people with this armor for a specific purpose that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil in this evil day. We're not called to be the sh shock troops of God's army, to take the battle to Satan in the spiritual realm. We are defense troops. As the war comes to us, we are to stand firm and hold the line as good and faithful servants, as good and faithful soldiers. What's interesting to note here is that Paul assumes that there will be a spiritual battle. We are to prepare for war, not just because Satan and his minions have lined up against the purposes of God and against us, but because of sin that still resides in us. And, and he describes this warfare of sin in us as wrestling. When Paul uses this word wrestling, he's, he's specifically chosen a word that speaks of warfare in terms of a hand-to-hand -hand combat, a face-to-face -face skirmish. We're not talking about lobbing shells from hundreds of miles away or remote drones, but close-quarter hand-to-hand combat. It's going to be personal. It's going to be exhausting. It's going to be messy. If Satan's desire is to dethrone Christ in your life, then you can bet his schemes will include every way possible to cause you to stumble. So if you're going to stand against him and his, and his schemes, it's going to demand a scorched earth mentality to sin in your life. Why? Because unrepentant sin distances us from God. It, it weakens our faith and it saps our conviction to live righteously. I don't know what your morning routines are like. When you get up, do you spend time in the Word? 
you allow it to meditate and to uh, be applied to your personal situation? Do you pray that you would be a good witness and that the Lord would protect you from things? But have you considered to present yourself to the Lord, that he would strengthen you in the power of his might, and that he would allow you to be girded by this armor? Here's the thing. God has provided this armor, but it is our responsibility to put it on. It is our daily responsibility to make sure that it is on so that we are ready for whatever skirmishes come our way that day. If we do not put on this armor, it will not protect us. It will sit at home and get dusty, just like our Bibles. From the moment we awake, Satan is endeavoring to seduce us to sin. He's working unrighteousness, not only in ourselves, but in the lives of people around us and in the world around us. He is the father of lies, and he knows how to subtly worm his way into our faith to undermine it. He's a liar, and he's a great manipulator. He's wonderful at creating situations that will apply pressure so that we might cave to temptation. There is no serendipitous events. God is moving all things for his ultimate purpose. But within that great stream, Satan is very much at work, desiring to manipulate things to cause us to fall. Be strong. But I know I can't be strong in myself. I, I have no power inherent in myself to be able to battle such a spiritual enemy but I have the armor of God. I have no inherent power to be able to fight sin in my life, and yet Christ has saved me. I am to stand strong in him. When we moved to our house in Acton when I was 10 years old, I was downstairs in the basement helping my dad clean up, and I found this little silver uh, carrying case, metal case, case with several sleeves inside. I opened it up and it was filled with hand-tied flies. Now, fly fishing is a lot harder than other types of fishing. It takes real technique and it, it's not just in the casting. And you think that you've met a determined, serious fisherman. You've probably never met anyone like a serious, determined fly fisherman. A fly fisherman will choose the place where he's going to go. For several days before he actually goes fishing, he'll go out there and he'll do nothing for several hours but just reconnoiter and know the situation. He will watch the flow of the stream by putting leaves or grass in it to see where the swirls and the eddies are. He'll be looking to see what bugs are out and what things the fish are eating. He knows where the shallows are, the deeps are, where the trees are overhanging, where there's a turn in the bank, how the sun will be shining on any particular time during that day. And each time he goes out, he'll take a little bit of food with him, a little bit of perhaps mealworm or dead flies, and he casts it in to bait the pond, to bait the stream. With all of this knowledge he'll go home and choose the fly that he wants to hook. 
wants to use. And, and if he's a really good expert fly fisherman, he's probably tied that fly himself. He's taken this little tiny hook, and with hundreds of threads, he's hidden that little tiny hook. When he finally decides to go fishing, he'll choose the right day with the right weather patterns. He'll go to the place where he's prepared, and he will stand upstream from the flow because he knows that if the fish even get a whiff of his shadow, they won't bite. And he'll cast, and he'll cast out, back and forth, each time letting the fly just touch the top of the water, pulling it back again. And if he's really good, he will even throw over top of a stump or a boulder or a small tree. And that repeated action represents a fly hitting the water. Now, if all of this isn't hard enough, he's got to have a subtle hand. He's got to have quick reflexes to know exactly when to set that tiny little hook in the trout and give it a yank and pull him in. Can you see where I'm going? Satan is the consummate fisher of men's souls. He knows how to cast or to case the river for the optimal conditions. He knows how to choose the right bait and prepare it days in advance. He's teased out and cast many times trying to get the fish's attention. He's patient, and most importantly, he knows how to set a tiny hook. He is real. He is powerful. He has a legion of powerful rulers and cosmic powers to do his bidding, and he desires to destroy your soul. Be strong in the Lord and his might and put on the whole armor of God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks that you have not simply saved us and left us to our own devices. But as we continue to come to your word to reflect on what Christ has done, you strengthen our innermost man. You give us the ability to be resolute and a desire to live for you. And Lord, you have given us a wonderful armor that we're going to look at next week. But as we do that, uh, in the meantime, help us to contemplate that this is something that we must do. We are called to put on that armor. We understand that Satan <clears throat> desires to sift us. He would desire to harm us. And yet by your wonderful grace toward us, you strengthen us and you give us the means to be able to effectually bring the battle to him. So, Lord, help each and every one of us, I pray this morning, to understand, to internalize, and to live it out in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. As you go this morning, I pray that you are strengthened in the Lord. Go in the purpose and the grace of God. In Jesus' name.